The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Joseph Stiglitz is a Nobel Prize winner, a professor at Columbia University, a former advisor to President Bill Clinton, and formerly the chief economist of the World Bank. As economists go, he is pretty highly decorated. He's also got a new book out, People, Power and Profits, and he stopped by Breaking Views to tell us about it. Along the way, we also talked about breaking up Facebook, enlightened Wall Street bosses, and why he thinks Elizabeth Warren has a shot at becoming US president in 2020. Joe, thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. The book People, Power and Profits is out this week. Um, now, this book is its a manifesto, isn't it? It's a very specific uh, guide to what's wrong with America's economy and how to fix it. But this isn't the first time that you have uh, put forward your manifesto on how to fix the American economy. And in, in 2015, you published a book called Rewriting the Rules on the American Economy. What is different this time? What I've tried to do is uh, bring together several strands in my wor- work. Uh, in 2012, I wrote a book called The Price of Inequality, where I focused on the growing inequality in America, uh, the underlying causes of that, and what we should be doing about it. Uh, as you mentioned, in 2015, I wrote this book, Rewriting the Rules of the American Economy, where I tried to explain how we had gone off course beginning roughly around 1980 with the Reagan uh, so-called revolution, uh, the result of which was not higher economic growth, but actually slower economic growth, but more inequality. What I wanted to do in this book was to bring all those themes together in a context of where we are in 2019, where many of the trends I had talked about, say, in 2012, have continued and gotten much worse. Uh, The consequences of the Great Recession of 2008 took a decade to come over, and now we're experiencing sugar high. Is this going to be a sustainable uh, period of growth, or is there really, have we missed the boat? Right, because a lot of the there are some scary numbers in this book about things like the falling share of uh, labor's falling share of GDP, which I think has gone from seventy five percent down to sixty percent. The the almost zero growth in real incomes for many parts of American society, and yet we're told that on a number of levels the American economy is doing quite well. Certainly, GDP, which I know is something that you have criticised at length in the past, seems to be quite good. How do, you, how do we square those two messages? One saying these problems that you have been talking about for decades have got worse, and the other saying it's never been a better time to be an American. Of course, po- politicians are always going to, to uh, feature the numbers that suit their interests uh, the best. Uh, my own work uh, in the measurement of economic performance Uh, I always emphasize that you need a dashboard. There's no single number that can capture everything. Uh, And right now, one number in that dashboard looks good, and that's the unemployment rate. But the other numbers don't look so good. And uh, when you look at the whole array of where we are, you you have to be worried. Let me just give you a few of the numbers. Uh, At the bottom, 
the real wages uh, are the same, roughly, as they were 60 years ago. And can you imagine people going for 60 years without a pay raise? And meanwhile, uh, you have public officials saying it, we're the best ever. Uh, it makes you feel uh, we sometimes call, you know, fear of missing out. Somehow, <laughs> a lot of people are missing out. Just, it may be the best day ever, but not if you're at the bottom. Uh, look at uh, one group where you see a lot of anger, males. Yeah. Uh, the median income of a full-time male worker, median means half above, half below, and the full-time guys are the lucky ones, is the same as it was more than 40 years ago. So you go at two generations of uh, no increases in standards of living. That's going to get you angry. Now, a lot of these, a lot of the ideas that you um, propose for fixing, it, and actually a lot of the, a lot of the, the causes of the problem, as you diagnose it, which are things like faulty markets and rent-seeking behaviour that drives greater inequality. These are they're almost mainstream now. I mean, certainly on, on, the, on the left side of the political spectrum, they're pretty mainstream, which in a sense is great, right? Because it means that people have now accepted broadly that the things you've been talking about for a long time actually are an issue. Um, but at the same time, now that this is mainstream, shouldn't we be seeing more concrete change, even with, you know, Republican, you know, uber capitalist in charge of the country? Are, are you seeing a traction in some of these ideas? I think definitely we're seeing traction uh, in these ideas. Uh, across the spectrum, there's a recognition of the uh, magnitude of inequality and the dangers that inequality uh, represents to our society, to our democracy. When I say across the spectrum, I don't mean everybody. And the, mm -hmm. the real problem is in the Trump administration and the extreme right, there is uh, uh, not a recognition uh, or at most a lip service. And you see that so forcefully in that 2007 tax bill, which when it's fully implemented will raise the taxes on a majority of people in the second, third, and fourth quintile. In other words, on a majority of people in the broad middle class. That's not the way you deal with inequality. You took away health insurance from more than 13 million Americans when uh, life expectancy is going down. This is not the way to increase security. So clearly on the Trump side of the Republican Party, there's not a recognition that we really do have a problem. Right. And it's but, worth walking through the, some of the things that you're not advocating here, because it, on, on a very cosmetic level, it sounds like some of the things that you complain about are also the things that President Trump complains about. Rigged markets, unfair trade deals, you know, he, he talks about um, about leveling the playing field, which he perceives to have been unleveled somehow against America. Now, you're absolutely not coming from the same place on these issues, yeah. right? Trump was extremely uh, sensitive uh, in identifying the angst, the uh, uh, discontent among large swaths of America, the people who were part of the deindustrialization, uh, who who had a sense of despair about where our society is going, where the promises that financialization and globalization were going to raise standards of living for everybody, those promises hadn't been fulfilled. And so he was sensitive to their complaints. But what he has proposed is actually making their plight worse. So 
he did a trick that demagogues always do, which is to blame others and then to have an agenda that reflects that blaming game. So he blamed immigrants. Immigrants aren't the source of our problem. Uh, in fact, uh, just as he was blaming the Mexican immigrants, the number of Mexican immigrants had already plummeted. We weren't getting any Mexican immigrants. It wasn't the source of our problem. And he blamed unfair trade deals. Well, in some ways, the trade deals were unfair, but it wasn't because of what foreigners had done to us. You know, when I talk to uh, trade ministers in other countries, they laugh and they say, you know, we wish uh, we could have uh, uh, been listened to. But in fact, the terms of our trade deals were set by the United States, by our U.S. trade representatives, like our trade minister. But they were set to reflect the interest of our big corporations. And so, yes, our workers did get a bad deal, but it was because of what American governments, particularly you know the Bush administration and the Reagan administration, previous administrations, including the Clinton administration, had done. Uh, the trade deals they had formulated representing the interest of our corporations. Right. So they, these, these deals did put America first, but they specifically put American companies first and not exactly. American Exactly. It was American companies first. And I've been a critic of those uh, and saying, look, you ought to put people first, people both in developing countries and American workers. You first. just mentioned migration not being not being the source of the problem. But do you do you do you think there are do you think migration is in any way a problem? It's certainly perceived to be for whatever reason. For America, uh, there's a certain irony about picking on this issue of migration because we're all, we are a country of migrants. And, you know, if you look at what is the strength of America, it always has been uh, immigration. Uh, and historically, we've done a good job of integrating the migrants. Uh, and, and it will be important for us to continue to do that job of integration. Some other countries have not done a very good job of integrating their migrants. And, and if you don't do that, obviously you have a problem. Right. But uh, if you do a good job of integration, uh, it actually enhances the strength of the country. You bring you know, new blood, new ideas, uh, people who really have a hunger to get ahead. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you look at uh, what is the strength of America in terms of narrowly uh, where we've been doing really well in the last 25 years at like Silicon Valley, the fraction of those firms in Silicon Valley that have been founded by immigrants uh, or at most first-generation Americans is, is actually very, very large. So uh, even in that area of being on the frontier, we've benefited. Uh, you know, here in New York, all of us realize we couldn't, as a city, function without immigrants. You know, we, 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 we need them. Right. So, to me, uh, that characterization that Trump has is so ugly. The idea that so America hateful. is full. What? The idea that America is full. Oh, it's absurd. Uh, you know, our farmers are saying, where are we going to get people to, to pick our vegetables and our fruits. Uh, yeah. uh, 
who are we going to get to work in our restaurants? You know, we need uh, these immigrants. And they, they go all the way from those kinds of jobs to uh, programming. Right, right. Programming brings us back to Silicon Valley. I mean, as you said, Silicon, Silicon Valley is full of great companies founded in many cases by migrants, but it's also part of the problem in your world view. You talk in the book about Facebook, uh, the idea of breaking up companies like Facebook, which have merged in some cases with other companies in a way that that is not necessarily good for consumers. And I know Elizabeth Warren, who um, who is uh, you know senator from Massachusetts, who is one of the Democratic presidential candidates, has also talked about breaking up tech companies. So how how is it possible that these companies that are founded on all the things that kind of do make America great, in your view, things like research, innovation, migration, good ideas, increased productivity, how did they become part of the problem? Well, this comes back to the title of my book, which is uh, People, Power, and Profits. Uh, the, the problem has always been uh, corporations make money by agglomerating power, uh, market power. Uh, it's been a problem uh, going back to the founding text of economics, Adam Smith, where he warned about the dangers of businessmen getting together to conspire against the interest by raising prices and depressing wages. And, uh, you know, so this is a 200-some-year uh, story. A uh, hundred and some years ago, we had problems of Standard Oil, uh, uh, and a whole slew of monopolies, we broke them up. And then about 50, 60 years ago, uh, we lost the way. Uh, there were some ideas propagated, particularly at the University of Chicago, people like Milton Friedman, and they said, don't worry about it, markets are naturally competitive. Uh, it was bogus. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it, the irony was it was exactly that moment that economics was developing the tools and the insights to understand why there was such market power. Uh, game theory, my own work on imperfect information, asymmetric information, showed how you could get, uh, how you could create and maintain market power. And one of the areas of innovation of our corporate sector has been exactly that. Right. Learning how to create, leverage, maintain, extend, market power. And concentrate. Concentration has been a feature of the American economy for at least three decades, right? Exactly. And you see it in the data so clearly. And yeah. I, I try to bring this out in the book to see the magnitude of the increases in concentration. And of course, the tech giants have been the poster child of this increased concentration. But as I point out in the book, it's pervasive. You go down to Things like pet food, your drugstores, sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. The, the uh, case of the drugstores, uh, they operate under four or five different names, but yeah. it's one owner. Yeah. And therefore, they, they can uh, coordinate their price so they, they, to make sure you pay more and get less. But why is it, I mean, the concentration of monopolies are a problem everywhere, but it seems to me that America is particularly behind the curve on some of this stuff. I mean, oh, if you look at the way Europe thinks about monopolies, Europe isn't quite at the stage of saying that big is automatically bad, but they're a long way along that road, the way that uh, the European Commission thinks about 
uh, e even what you might think of as um, you know, elective monopolies, companies like Amazon or Google that have got where they are just by being good at what they do and customers have chosen them rather than been forced to use them. But still Europe is saying we, we're not happy with the way these companies work. That doesn't seem to be the mainstream view here in the States. Exactly. So, you know, we were the leader in trying to maintain a competitive market, making the market economy work for Americans through competition. Uh, and that was with the Sherman Act, uh, Clayton Act, back at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century. And then, as I said, Milton Friedman, Chicago School, said, don't worry, markets are naturally competitive, uh, don't interfere with the wonders of the market economy. So we pulled back. Mm. But meanwhile, Europe figured it out. And just to give you one example of where we differ between Europe and the United States, uh, in the United States, if you legitimately acquire market power, uh, you can do anything with it. So if a company acquires uh, a monopoly, you know, just buys it. That's a legitimate acquisition of a market power. And we saw what happens in the case of drugs. They can raise the price a thousand percent. In Europe, there's a doctrine called abuse of market dominance. And you say, you know, uh, I don't care how you got your market power, legally or illegally, you can't abuse that power. Mm. You know, I don't care how you bought a hammer. If you hit somebody over the head with that hammer, uh, we won't allow that. Yeah. So uh, you see that, that principle being used against Facebook uh, in Germany. Uh, Germany has said, look at Facebook has market dominance, legally or illegally acquired, we don't care. And it's using that to invade individuals' privacy rights. Uh, and so they are taking actions to stop that. So you'd break these companies up? Uh, and one way to do it uh, is to break them up. Uh, sometimes it's going to be difficult, but there was absolutely no reason to allow Facebook to buy Instagram uh, and uh, the other companies that it's bought that simply increase its market power. And in fact, if you look at the prices that Facebook paid it was very clear what it was doing. It was maintaining market dominance because yeah. it, you know, they, they paid amounts of money that were unconscionable if you looked at it for what they were buying today. But so you were saying they, that was a, that was they could pay that because they knew they were foreclosing competition, basically. They were foreclosing competition and they were willing to pay a lot to foreclose competition. Right. And that should have been a signal to the regulators that what they were doing was foreclosing competition. So, because company, companies, and not just tech companies, but companies recur in your work as kind of the, the, the villains of the piece, in a way, big companies anyway, that they, that they have this, this drive towards making profits at, at the, to the detriment in some cases of the economy, which is something particularly in the financial sector, CEOs don't particularly care about, even if they say they do. But one of the things that, that has definitely changed in the last couple of years is that you can now open up the annual report of a company like J.P. Morgan and find a 50-page letter from the chief executive talking about how capitalism needs to be fixed. You can hear Larry Fink, who runs BlackRock. I mean, these are people who have paid $30 million talking about how we have a crisis of inequality and it's time to do something about it. How should we regard that? Because on one 
level, you might think, hallelujah, these people have suddenly become enlightened and they realise that if they don't act now, the problem may overwhelm them. So should we be encouraged by this? And is is there any hope for a kind of enlightened capitalism growing organically out of the structure that we already have? Well, obviously, we should we should celebrate that the CEOs are part of our society and they're listening, uh, that there is a problem and they recognize it, not only in terms of oh, the inequality, uh, but uh, in terms of the way the environment is treated. Uh, uh, Larry Fink, uh, the head of BlackRock, often emphasizes the short-termism of the market economy. And you can't build a sustainable, long-run economy based on quarterly returns. And he's emphasized that. Uh, on the other hand, uh, one also has to understand that corporations have gotten very good in public relations. Uh, what is called in the environmental area, greenwashing. Yeah. Uh, so uh, some of our big banks uh, put in uh, uh, environmental-friendly light bulbs, but meanwhile are lending to the coal industry that's killing us. Yep. So to me, I call that greenwashing. You know, where where uh, you'll you'll do something that makes a little bit of difference and it shows that you're worried about it, but in your core business practices, you're really destroying us. So I want to ask you a bit also about um, about socialism. I had to laugh. There was a the congressional hearing earlier this month where we had a bunch of Wall Street CEOs all sitting there in front of politicians and one of this, a representative from Texas started his five minutes by asking each of them, are you a socialist or a capitalist? To which they, of course, all said, I am a capitalist. But what is this thing called socialism and why are some people so scared of it? Because it, it's brought up, socialism is brought up as the reason why you shouldn't make any of the changes you're suggesting. But I, my sense is that if you say the word socialism to someone who's 25, um, they picture something very different from what you get if you mention it to someone who is 65. So how do you think about this word? Is it helpful? And what does it mean? Uh, I think the term uh, socialist uh, is not helpful in the current context. Uh, and the reason it's not helpful is that uh, it carries a lot of baggage, uh, which is being exploited by some demagogues like uh, President Trump. Right. Uh, the, there was an old idea of socialism going back a hundred years ago, which was the uh, ownership of the basic means of production. When Bernie Sanders says he's a, uh, a democratic socialist, he doesn't mean anything like that. Uh, when AOC says that she's a democratic socialist, she doesn't mean anything like that. Uh, so the kind of way that Trump is trying to say that Maduro and these new, you know, these democratic socialists are the same, really is another demonstration that Trump, uh, of Trump's ignorance. What does Bernie mean and what does Alessandro Ocasio-Cortez mean when they say, when they use the word, what are they basically trying to tell us? What they're trying to say is uh, socialist is the way the word is being used in Europe, social democratic, socialist, and that is that society and the economy ought to be be able to be designed to serve society right. and that and to serve all of us you know that uh, we we don't exist to serve the market the market exists to serve us 
What about one of the things that you don't dig into too much in this book is is the monetary, the idea of um, changing monetary, the way monetary policy works. Uh, one of the things that's getting frequently and hotly debated at the moment is this idea of modern monetary theory, uh, which is not necessarily new, but is getting a kind of new lease of life. It's uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for example, has said that we need to have more conversations about this idea that, and I'm going to butcher it slightly in, in boiling it down, but that a, com- a country like the States that basically can borrow in its own currency, doesn't need to worry about deficits as much. It just needs to focus on inflation and let the government spend what's needed, which would be great for some of the things that you're suggesting, right? Because these are going to cost money. um, And this is one way to guiltlessly, almost guiltlessly, spend loads of money. Um, So where are you on this idea of modern monetary theory or MMT? Is it something that you think is is an answer to some of the questions that you're posing? Uh, Is is there mileage in this as an alternative way of doing things? useful in shifting the focus off of deficit. Uh, It would have been particularly useful back in 2008. Uh, At that point, we had uh, official 10% unemployment rate, but those of us who looked at the numbers more carefully said really the effective unemployment rate was closer to 20%. And we had a lot of excess capacity We shouldn't have our hands tied by uh, a focus on deficits. We had such need for infrastructure. And if you remember at that moment, the Republicans said, oh, no, 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 we can't do all those things because we have focused on deficits. Uh, It was a little disingenuous because in December 2017, when it came to giving a tax cut for the billionaires and for the corporations, they turned a blind eye to the deficit and said, oh, deficits don't matter anymore. Uh, It was the wrong timing. But and so maybe all of those Republicans are really closet MMTs, uh, closet mon- modern monetary theorists. They didn't give any theory to it. They just uh, they just said w- w- greed is what defines us, and and you know we can get away with it. But the idea that back in two thousand eight and ten we could have used uh, borrowed more money. Mm-hmm to make those investments to strengthen our economy over the long run was absolutely right. So you, so theoretically, you're on board with this idea. But the question is, uh, at what point does inflation begin? Right. Now, this is where we're in a very delicate territory right now, because unemployment is relatively low. And yet, we haven't had much unemployment. Mm-hmm. But those of us who look at these numbers say, well, we, are, we have a, some disguised unemployment. People who couldn't get a job uh, have dropped out of the labor force. It's not called unemployed, but it's really disguised unemployed. You know, they're not employed. Uh, we can pull them back into the labor force. But we don't know exactly where, but at some point we reach a limit, and at some point we are going to have to ask the question, we're not going to be able to expand the size of the national pie. We're going to have to redeploy the way we spend money. And we're going to have to think more carefully, more deeply, at a microeconomic level, how we do expand the pie. Right. So that's where the, the agenda I've talked about, you know, let's get rid of market power, 
or reduce the market power because that really constrains the market by it, it, redu- it introduces a real distortion in our economy. Mm-hmm. I've talked about let's try to make our labor mar- our jobs more adaptable for elderly like me mm-hmm. or for women mm-hmm. who want to have a life work balance. So there are many things that we can do to expand the pie, but it's not going to happen overnight. So I just want to quickly ask you a specific thing about the the presidential election that we're going into next year. We've got, I mean, you advised, of course, Hillary Clinton, um, and previously you advised her husband, Bill, when he was president. Um, We've now got 19 candidates putting themselves forward for the Democratic nomination. Um, Joe Biden might make it 20 any time now. Uh, That's even more than the Republicans had in 2016. They were on 17, I think. Um, what that clearly is, uh, means that uh, there are a lot of different views out there. And you, and you call in the book for different movements to try and see eye to eye. But it doesn't seem that's happening. So what, what's this going to do to the, the quality of the race? And is there anything that you would take from 2016, any kind of teachings or, or mistakes that you would not make the second time around that might affect the chances of a Democratic candidate in 2020 going up against Donald Trump? Well, I hope... The Democrats uh, engage in, you might call, a positive agenda. Uh, You know, it's obviously important to call out the corruption in Trump that the Mueller report brought out so forcefully. And part of the political agenda is how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? You know, that our rule of law has actually worked pretty well, but not perfectly. And I think the big lesson of the last four years is that we need to shore up our checks and balances. Our, you know, there are many institutional reforms that we need to take money out of politics, to really drain the swamp mm-hmm. this time, but also to strengthen the, the potential of abuse in our system. So that's part of agenda which I think all Democrats can agree on. Uh, I think all Democrats uh, can agree on the basic objectives of what we, what Americans want. Uh, uh, they want health care. They want education for their children. They want uh, a better mortgage system. You know, secure retirement. They want jobs. I think we can uh, articulate that and say, let's begin a debate about the best way of doing it. Here is my idea, but I'm willing to listen to other ideas. You know, part of democratic debate is put forward idea, listen to what others say, and, uh, you know, if my idea doesn't win out, it doesn't mean that I really think that you're a terrible person. I just think that you thought that this is the best way, and I think this is the best way, and then we'll uh, deal with it. I happen to advocate strongly the public option is a mechanism of getting health care for all. Right. Bernie thinks uh, a single-payer system is the best way. Um, you know, when we get into a national debate about that in Congress, we'll look at the costing of the various things. We'll look at uh, how Americans feel about uh, uh, giving up their current insurance for uh, Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. We'll think about the fact that our health care system costs so much more than any others, and yet delivers so much less than other yeah. advanced countries. And when we think about that, we'll say, well, actually, we're going to be making a lot of savings if we go to a more efficient healthcare delivery system. So those are all the details that we'll 
take a long time to be debated. Do you think Elizabeth Warren, who has uh, obviously um, shares a lot of your views on things, is potentially a winner? I think she is. I mean, I think I think she she brings to to bear uh, a, a clear understanding of of the depths of the issues that I've talked about, uh, of the need for regulation, of the concerns about. Uh, students uh, being able to affordable education, at the abuses of the financial sector. You know, she's really over the years put forward a pragmatic program. Um, so I think, um, you know, in terms of the quality of the articulation of mm-hmm. the reforms we need, she's, she's done a really excellent job. That sounds like a slightly qualified praise though in terms of the quality of, do you think she is, she is she doing a good job of selling those ideas though uh you know uh, she sells them wonderfully to me I <laughs> love your it. ideas and i can't make a judgment about uh how it's going to sell in new hampshire and iowa and california uh you know that's that's where the primaries come in and and i wouldn't want to second guess how, how other voters are going to respond. I mean, you've got a manifesto here. Have you thought about running yourself? You know, I think uh, economists talk about comparative advantage and, and what each of us, our skill, uh, my skill is writing books and doing economic analysis. Uh, and what I've tried to do here is is uh, put, as you call it, a manifesto, uh, an analysis of where we went wrong and how to fix it. And uh, I hope what I have done here is provided uh, an intellectual framework that all the candidates can grab on and they can pick out various ideas here of policies that they feel comfortable with uh, and begin a national conversation about these. Well, as we get into 2020, there's going to be a lot to have a conversation about. Thanks very much for joining us, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for The Exchange, and thanks also to Freddie Joyner, Andrew D'Antonio, and Amanda Gomez. If you like what you hear, please share it and find more episodes of The Exchange wherever fine podcasts are heard. Join us next time, and meanwhile, you can also find our financial stylings at www.breakingviews.com.